Before we get into the episode, we want to let you know we are gathering another Attaching to God learning cohort. In it, you will escape your anxious jungles and avoiding deserts of faith and grow into secure attachment with God and with others. This is a one-of-a-kind six-week cohort combining recorded teachings and live cohort calls. So you can get all the details at embodiedfaith.life slash learning dash cohorts or see the show notes for details after the description. You ever feel like you're acting on autopilot or ever feel out of control? (laughs) (laughs) What if you aren't responsible for actions, for your actions? What if your neurochemistry or your family history made you do it? My name is Jeff Holsklaw and this is the Being With podcast. And we're talking about the intersection of neuroscience and faith. This is brought to you by Grassroots Christianity, which is growing faith for everyday people. Today, we have a special guest, Warren Brown who is the professor of psychology and the director of the Lee Travis Research Institute at the Graduate School of Psychology Fuller Seminary. He is a research neuropsychologist and neuroscientist, and he's written several books like Whatever Happened to the Soul, Did My Neurons Make Me Do It with Nancy Mursby, and recently he co-wrote Enhancing Christian Life, How Extended Cognition Augments Religious Community. He wrote that with Brad Strawn, who we just had on recently. But Dr. Brown, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, I'd like to ask a couple more personal questions before getting into the, you know, your, your field. Yeah. How did you get interested or started on this field of psychology and neuroscience and neuropsychology? Uh, mostly in grad school. I mean, I was, it was interesting to me as an undergrad and then I, applied both to a clinical psychology program and an experimental psychology program. And I got at USC, I got into the experimental psychology program and then got working with a professor who was into brain function and how the brain operates for higher cognitive processing and got interested in that and went on to do a postdoc at UCLA Brain Research Institute and and stayed at UCLA Brain Research Institute for 10 years. And yeah. mm, So you just followed your interest in your curiosity. Yeah, exactly. Well, I did something similar when I was uh, studying philosophy. But when you study enough philosophy, and I think this is somewhat true maybe with neuroscience, you start feeling like, is this whole religion thing a crock? Or how does this work? Have you had wow. any kind of faith kind of struggles or just difficulties, you know, because when you're uh, a doctor, professor, researching how the mind works, has yeah. it ever been difficult for your faith? Uh, not exactly. I, I always felt that there was some way of reconciling this, but I didn't exactly know what it was. Mm-hmm. Not sure I totally know now. Uh, when I was uh, in grad school, I actually studied with a guy who was a pretty serious Mormon, a guy named Gary Galbraith. And uh, so one of the reasons we kind of connected with each other is we were both fairly serious about spiritual life and faith. And, and then, uh, but I must admit that most of my early career 
I was guilty of what you might call conceptual apartheid. Oh, okay. there's my science here, and there was my <laughs> faith here, and I didn't try very hard to figure out and think deeply about, you know, what were the disconnects and what were the connects, and mm-hmm. until I got working with Nancy Murphy in that book, uh, whatever happened to the soul, and so at that point I took a dive into philosophy and theology and started thinking more seriously about how you reconcile a neuroscience view of persons with a spiritual and a cognitive and a psychological view of persons. Yeah. Well, good. We'll we'll jump right into that in a second. Okay. What has been most helpful then? Like what has like spurred on your faith as you studied on these things? Um, Or what just something about your mind or that your body or soul, you know, well, the work that you want. Yeah, the work that I started doing with Nancy and went into the couple books I did with Nancy Murphy and with Malcolm G's and eventually with Brad Strawn um, moved me away from a sort of Cartesian mind-body dualism into understanding how one could un- be uh, have a fully um, funded Christian faith that uh, nevertheless was embodied and took into account our bodily selves, including our nervous systems and brain. Mm. So, yeah. So the more you learned, the more integrated you became. Yeah. I mean, my science kind of went, you know, on, and there are occasionally things in the work I do and science that are interesting to me from the point of view of uh, philosophy and theology. But what happened really is I got drawn into a lot of conversations uh, involving the philosophy of mind and its relationship to Christian faith. That happens inevitably when you are a professor, even a neuroscience professor at a theological seminary. You just get in these conversations, so you can't avoid them. So just being at Fuller was a lot of the impetus for me to flesh out a lot of things that I'd kind of set aside. Yeah, well, that sounds like a lot of fun. I was like, I want to get on all those conversations. So you did co-write a book with Nancy Murphy called What Are Did My Neurons Make Me Do It? Yes. What is all the what is all that about? Is it is the self really not a thing? Do I have no consciousness, no free will? Am I just a selfish gene the way Daniel Dennett says, you know, I'm yeah. just genes trying to survive in the world and my consciousness is just an elaborate lie so that I can get more calories and pass on my genetic code to another yeah. Yeah. offspring. That's obviously the statement of the problem, that if you <laughs> believe in embodiment, that we are in fact bodily persons and not bodies with you know, separate non-material minds or souls, then one has to contend with exactly the kinds of things that you just stated. So Nancy Murphy and I, who is a philosophy of mind professor at Fuller Seminary, and I wrote this book uh, to try to defend um, a emergent and complex view of human beings that is embodied but doesn't allow for reductionism and therefore determinism. 
So reductionism is the idea that you could take my, let's say, my thoughts at the moment and reduce them down to nothing but certain neural connections and neural activity, that that's all it is, uh, that there, it doesn't uh, have causal power. It doesn't do things in its own right. My thoughts aren't effective as thoughts per se. And then and if you reduce it that way, then it becomes determinist. And so did my neurons make me do it? Was answering the question, did my neurons make me do it or did I do it? And the answer is the latter. No, your neurons didn't make you do it. You did it. That you as a, that there are emergent properties of us that gather all of these underlying bodily processes into a functioning whole that has properties that cannot be reduced. The, the body is necessary, obviously, if our bodies, if our brains get dysfunctional, things happen. But uh, nevertheless, uh, our uh, thoughts, choices, feelings, experiences as whole persons are not reducible without loss to lower levels of functioning. Mm -hmm. So when I make a decision, it's a real me that makes the decision, even though I have to have lots of things going on neurally out of which that process emerges. Mm -hmm. That's so kind of complex, but <laughs> yeah, no. So the B is built up of a nervous system, or you know, yeah. grouping of nervous systems. The yeah. B is you know part yeah. of neurotransmitters, and yeah. um, you know all the different yeah. ways that our synapses connect yeah. and, or fail to connect. And these, so those things yeah. are all part of me, but they don't. Yeah. I can't be reduced to those things. That yeah. in some way that there's an yeah. emergent or complex or yeah. something. And for people. For people of faith who have to deal with, for example, a older relative who gets Alzheimer's disease and seems to sort of lose their faith or get really bizarre in their behavior or do things they wouldn't otherwise do, you need some, some way to, to deal with that, to understand that and uh, understand them as people and what's possible. Less, there's less structure there out of which more sophisticated cognition can emerge and so mm -hmm. if there was a real there's a real deficit there yeah for sure so then how do we uh what are what are good ways of integrating then those two things because i you know growing up in a more fundamentalist context and now i'm in a, a more charismatic church you know if someone's struggling with depression then, you know, they either are living in disobedience would be like the more fundamentalist answer and they need to confess their sin or they're not uh, spirit powered enough. You know, they need some deliverance from, you know, oppression. And I'm not against either of those options. Like those are real yeah. options in some people's lives. But, you know, uh, if we take embodiment seriously, there could be, you know, different bodily causes for depression yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, there are, uh, for example, neurotransmitters that might be dysfunctional that uh, need a anti-depression drug. Mm -hmm. So uh, that you're not going to really get beyond your your depression without some additional, or you know, it may be both a antidepressant and time and prayer may both be necessary. 
Sure. And maybe uh, even some therapy and, you know. Yeah. And there's some, yeah, exactly. So, but I, I think that's uh, what I find helpful about the position I've taken is that you don't dichotomize the world. Mm-hmm. It's not like there's the spiritual world or there's the physical world and these are not integrated in some important way. And then we face into things where they're clearly mixed up and integrated, and I can't figure out what's going on. And if we understand ourselves as more embodied persons, we are part of God's physical creation. But we are part of God's physical creation with a capacity, nevertheless, to understand and know him and and his presence in the world. That makes a whole lot of things clearer to me. Mm. Yeah. And you, I've found that the more I learn, the less I have to feel like I need to know who's doing what and everything. Yeah. And I'm just yeah. open to multiple possibilities yeah. that there could be yeah. multiple causal explanations for exactly. different things that are going on. So an integrate, just to summarize, at least kind of the, how I think about it. Um, and you could say what you think is that an integrated kind of Christian worldview, if you want to call it that between, you know, um, whatever kind of how however you think of the spiritual life and our embodied life um it's not like dualistic so like platonic or cartesian Mm -hmm. where the spirit is everything and the matter is kind of nothing but it's also not reductionistic where you know the spirit and the mind and those are all just kind of fantasies that we've created uh and really it's just the matter that matters and a christian worldview kind of says well both those things are kind of working together and there there really is an upward causality of of energy in matter, you know, expressed through chemicals, like those things are emerging, you know, and then the impulses in my nervous system causing emotional reactions, which cause, mm-hmm. right. So there is this upward movement, but what you're trying to say, I think is that there's also some, I don't know if you use the word downward causality, but there's some sort yeah. of downward yeah. pressure. A, yeah. that the thing we call mind is exercising. Yeah. yeah. And that downward pressure we see very clearly when our mind brain is not working very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, for whatever reason, and so we the people with brain disorder are less capable of certain kinds of mental activity, and I think uh, are less capable of participating uh, fully in a uh, Christian life, particularly as is embodied in the Christian uh, group, the church, the ecclesia, the the body. Uh, so that, and that what we tried to say in extended cognition in the book Brad and I just did was that an important part of understanding what Christian life is about is to understand our connectedness and our nestedness within the body of Christ that we experience locally, that we are, we plug into a larger body that makes enhances our Christian life in significant ways. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, you yeah. just wrote just wrote the book called Enhancing Christian Life, How Extended Cognition yeah. Augments Religious Community with, with Brad Strawn. And um, for you, how do you summarize this idea of extended cognition? We're not just brains and bodies, but there's a yeah. lot more going on there. Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, a simple statement I think that Andy Clark makes is, is that we all think we're smarter than we think we are. Uh, 
particularly if you extract us from all of the uh, intelligence enhancing things that surround us in our environment. For example, my computer or my cell phone or whatever else. Um, Brad may have talked about this, but uh, for example, the, the example that philosophers use is an idea of a man named Otto, a fictitious man named Otto who has Alzheimer's disease and uses a pad of paper to write down things that he needs to remember. And then when he needs to remember something, he looks in his notebook. And the question is, is looking in your notebook really any different than consulting your hippocampus, which is the memory structures in your brain? And they, they argue, no, that this is in fact a network of cognition that involves the notebook as well as the brain and the body, and therefore cognition, in this case memory, is extended by using something outside of himself. And they argue that a whole, most of our, a lot of our cognitive life is not nearly as rich as if we were extracted and not able to, to continually interact with parts of our environment that actually nest into our environment a lot of our cognitive capacities. Mm -hmm. So Andy Clark says we make the world smart so that we can be dumb in peace. <laughs> and I, you know, I think that's part, that's kind of the way it is. We build a very useful, efficient uh, environment for ourselves that makes us smarter. And by interacting with that, there's a whole lot of things we can do that we couldn't do entirely on our own. And it's mm -hmm. by networking with these. So Brad and I decided we would take that seriously with respect to spirituality, that we're not nearly as spiritual or Christian if isolated on our own than we are when we are uh, able to plug into and interact with uh, a lot of things around us that enhance our spirituality, particularly the ecclesia, the church, uh, uh, other Christian persons, and then tools like uh bible and christian writings and mm -hmm. so yeah well and the interesting thing uh later in the book that that you guys mentioned was just how to think of rituals and even church tradition and yeah hymn books and how these are kind of the the, the relics of the past um it's not just tradition and traditionalism and things like this it's really a part of our collective cognition that we're carrying yeah. past into the future. Yeah. That really made me kind of think about those things differently. That was pretty interesting. Yeah. I, I, uh, again, I think we give ourselves way too much credit as individuals mm -hmm. that, you know, could I really be a Christian if I had not been raised in a church or had not had Christian teaching or had not had Christian fans or had not been able to read the Bible uh, you know, what, how Christian can one imagine one could be without this kind of extended life? Mm -hmm. And so, so Brad and I are both, uh, fairly, um, focused on the importance of the church and the ecclesia and the enhancing of Christian life that, you know, being sort of a solo Christian out there entirely on your own is probably possible, but not very robust. Yes. 
Yes, so. absolutely. Well, that's what I really enjoyed about your book is that it doesn't just say, well, community is important for the Christian life. Yeah. It actually kind of fills out why yeah. and then how all those things are interacting kind of on a regular level that not even my private spiritual life of Bible reading and prayer is really all that private because I have all these other selves and persons and conversations that are informing even that private time because yeah. I've been extended and received yeah. those things. And that's I, I that's really helpful. Yeah. yeah. And it fills out more that we are social beings and it's yeah. uh, what is primarily so, different. I know how to pray and I know what to pray for and and uh I know the experience of prayer. So even when I'm praying on my own by myself, I am simulating and rehearsing and drawing on what I have received from the body of Christ. Mm. Yes, exactly, exactly. Well, I, I know you're a uh, a researcher, uh, yeah. and, and you you deal with people who have like right brain kind of lateralization, kind of different things. But are, has there been anything that you're kind of working on or writing up that uh, you know doesn't show up in any books that you're just really interested or passionate about that you'd want to just share a little sneak peek on your research life? Uh, yeah, I study a really interesting. Disorder. Uh, let me back up philosophically and then tell you why I think this is interesting. All right. So one of the philosophical issues that Nancy Murphy and I dealt with and, and Malcolm G's and Brad and I all deal with the idea of emergence, mm-hmm. which is this idea that a, a system, a complex system, as it works together, properties emerge in that system that you can't reduce to the elements in the system. So that philosophers use the idea of an ant colony. Ant colonies do things that you can't reduce to the uh, capacities or activity of individual ants. What causes things to happen is what emerges from the interactivity of the whole colony. Mm. So I deal with people with a genesis of the corpus callosum, which is a disorder that people are born with where the right and left cerebral hemispheres don't connect as richly. So there's 200 million connectors that go between the right side and the left side that are just not there at birth and never reappear. So you have this very disconnected right and left uh, side of the brain and uh, I've been interested in for 25 years in studying what is the consequence of this to one's cognitive capacities and social capacities. And these people function, at least the ones we study, in the normal range. And, and uh, you know, often you can be in a conversation with them and not quite realize. Mm-hmm. And then... After a while, maybe they come out as just a little bit odd or different than and you're not sure why and whatever. So mm. uh, the idea of emergence is, that, is it's based on interactivity and interconnectivity. And I'm dealing with a group of patients for whom there is less neural interactivity by 200 million neurons mm. between two big cognitive structures, the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere. And what we find is that the, first of all, they're persons in absolutely every way. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they are have less robust, but nevertheless clearly existent higher cognitive processing and higher social interactive understanding. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, we found that they don't uh, understand second order meaning and language. That is, jokes usually have kind of one meaning and what's really funny is the alternative meaning Mm -hmm. or metaphors have one sort of concrete meaning. But what's really interesting about the metaphor is its alternative meaning. And they have a very difficult time Mm -hmm. structuring that. So, and that kind of things comes up in a number of different areas. Their creativity uh, is not, you know, great. They're creative in some ways, but, but um, don't really uh, create and structure in their mind what's beyond what you just told them. Yeah. And, and so my so this relates to emergence. This is an example of what we are trying to talk about. That the that what emerges is has to do with interactivity and connectivity and. Yeah. So you've got two normal structures here. They just not as much emerges because they don't interact as richly and robustly. So, mm. so we really need to be whole-brained people. We actually, uh, just a couple episodes uh, ago, I interviewed someone uh, called Michael Hendricks who wrote a book called The Other Half of the Church. And he argues that uh, our church life in the West is too left-brained. Uh, and so we are missing kind of the creative... Uh, yeah, I know. It all depends on what you mean by left brain. But, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, which is, I want to do some, maybe I should have you on and we could talk all about right and left brain research because there is something to it. But I think the yeah. popular, popularized views of these things is, yeah. is not quite right. Yeah. Um, and so maybe we should talk about right and left lateralization uh, at some point. But he was arguing that um, kind of our our character runs, you know, at the at at a fast speed where we're interacting with the world and, you know, our left brain primarily, you know, the logical linguistic, however you want to talk about it, it kind of runs a little slower and it doesn't get the nuances of meaning. It doesn't doesn't kind of live in the mystery as often uh, and things like that. So I I think there's something to that. Um, And so, uh, yeah, yeah, but maybe I'm not sure you need my, my, I'm not sure you need the terms left brain and right brain. Oh, okay. Well, what would be a better? Yeah. well, you have one processing mode that's verbal and linear, and you have other processing modes that are more uh, spatial, immediate, mm-hmm. um, and more uh, connected with certain experiences of the body that we call emotions. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. And then you have the whole idea of habit. And I think we need to pay more attention on our Christian life to the idea of habits, which is the idea that life runs off at way too fast a speed to do anything but react in a, in a somewhat habitual way or the way we usually react. And it's very difficult. Well, we don't usually don't have time, but even if we did, it's difficult to get ourselves to step back and uh, think about our activity. So you, you don't get to stop the merry-go-round. It just keeps spinning. <laughs> you can't stop it and say verbally and linearly. And yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, it's all connected. So do you, I know some people talk about fast and slow. Do you think that's a better yeah. way to talk about the brain processing then? Uh, it's another better way. It's slightly I, better. <laughs> well, no, it's, I think we need all of these mm-hmm. uh, ways of thinking about left brain, right brain is really used as a metaphor. Mm-hmm. And so it's probably a metaphor as long as you don't take it. It's, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, take its sure. uh, neural embodiment too seriously. It yeah. is a good metaphor for two kind of ways of dealing with the world. Right. And they're always in conversation. Well, except for the patients yeah. you deal with, they're both in conversation yeah. with each yeah. other anyway, so you can't separate yeah. it too much. Well, good. Well, um, my last question, I mean, if you don't, if you don't want to ask this, answer this, that's fine. But at the end of the book, um, the most recent one, um, uh, Enhancing Christian Life, you do you kind of just talk about, well, there's things that need to be kind of still left unsaid um, that neuroscience can't really get at the questions of, you know, God and does God exist and mm-hmm. uh, religion? Cause those could be reductive kind of questions. I know there's lots of neuroscientists and cultural anthropologists that do reduce all God talk to just, you know, are struggling to find meaning in a meaningless mm-hmm. world, things like that. So what, where, how does that kind of, you know, interacting with God or how do we speak about God? What are good and bad ways to use neuroscience to talk about God? Uh, bad ways are the ways uh, a guy named Ramachandran at one time, about 10 or 15 years ago, talked about the God spot. And this was a reductionist view that, you know, what religion is activity in some areas of the amygdala and each part of our temporal lobes it's and that was the god spot feelings of transcendence and disconnection yeah, from yeah, the world and we yeah. can reduce mystical experiences by this yeah. brain brain region yeah. yeah well but it's not that our our whole selves including our amygdala and our emotional systems and our significant system aren't heavily involved in these things so anything that is significant in the world will activate certain brain systems, including the amygdala. And so, of course, it would be involved in spiritual life and experiences. And so I think things are experienced bodily. So any religious experience, you can track a lot of things in the body. And there may be some of them that tend to be more uh, involved when the experience has the label or idea of religious because that's particularly important and those areas are not quite as involved when the experience is not religious but that those are descriptions of us as bodies and how we interact with the world and i don't think there's any religiously unique way that my body interacts with the world but the uh, issue with theology and Christian faith is, does something exist outside of my body? Mm-hmm. Is God present in the world? Is God's spirit present in the world? And that you just, there's no way to know that from what the body does. Mm-hmm. If, it's, if God is present in the world, that's going to be very significant to me. It's going to have a lot of bodily implications for me at the moment. And, uh, but it's not reducible to that. I mean, that could happen at a baseball game. I mean, so. 
especially when the Cubs are winning for me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe the Dodgers for you, but you're like the yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a Dodger. Uh-oh. Yeah. Well, I'm yeah. Sure so, are. so to uh, one of the problems with some of that research is uh, incomplete set of background comparisons. Mm-hmm. So you do a person in a religious state of some kind that they define. And then you do somebody in some other state that's not, and you just say, oh, well, because the brain acted a little differently in the state that the person called religious, then the, then the religiousness is reducible to this. Well, how many other conditions are there in the world that would have given you the same mm-hmm. neural activity because of the depth of significance of that experience to the person experience it. So it's not a God spot. It is just a domains of the brain that process things that are really significant to me. And that has no, uh, nothing to say either way about whether God exists in the world or not. Mm-hmm. So neuroscience cannot deconstruct theology as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Yeah. And I think, again, and we've been talking about this, is that, you know, we need complex answers for complex systems in the the human brain yeah. and human relationships and civilization is is probably the most complex thing that we yeah. know and yeah. have encountered. And, and too often we have simplistic, reductionistic explanations for these things like, oh, we did a couple... MRIs are different kind of brain yeah. scans and we see that blood flow to this area. And so therefore yeah. this means yeah. but blood, you know, you weren't looking, but you know, yeah. when I right. was thinking about my mom and how she might pass away soon, maybe the same thing was happening. Yeah. Or maybe I was thinking yeah. about the birth of my son and maybe the same thing, but you weren't asking that question. Right. Yeah. And so I think sometimes we can be reductionistic and a book comes out an article and then a newspaper yeah. article that says X, Y, and Z and religion is just, Neuroscience. It's like no, it's, it's yeah. not that simple. One, one of our our traps is to uh, suppose always one cause, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when in fact everything that happens to me and my life and my body is multiply caused. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on, uh, old habits of this and that, and thoughts about this and whatever context I'm in. And so there's multiple causations and those merge together in something that I identify as me as an agent. And, uh, but that agency isn't, can't be reduced to one cause. Right. Right. Well, as a, as a theologian, you know, who studies theology, I always go back to the two natures of Christ that we have these, you know, Jesus was, fully human and fully divine. And this are two yeah. kind of causal stories that we have to take seriously, but we don't just have to go to theology for that. I yeah. think, um, you know, like light is both a wave and a particle yeah. and it has these two yeah. different kind of natures and scientists still haven't unified general relativity, which, you know, tracks the movement of gravity and stars with, uh, you know, quantum mechanics and how electrons and how all these things fit together. Yeah. There's like two different views of the world that we don't know how they fit together, but they yeah. are incredibly accurate. And I think yeah. we in faith, you know, we, we can look at, you know, this questions of doctrine and, you know, uh, as, as 
a reason for holding two causal kind of mm-hmm. modalities, but there's also lots of physical sciences that hold, do the same thing. And so we're not yeah. out to lunch for doing this. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been uh, super fun for me. And we've gotten a couple of thumbs up uh, online on Facebook and YouTube as we've been talking. Uh, we've been sitting with uh, Dr. Warren Brown of Fuller Seminary, who just wrote Enhancing Christian Life. You should check it out. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. 